reading is from chapters 31 and 32 of Deuteronomy, beginning at page 29 in the Church Bibles. Got that? Page 209. Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 to 8. Joshua to succeed Moses. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I'm now 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. The Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And now to verse 30. The song of Moses. And Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly towards him. To their shame they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord? O foolish and unwise people, is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Now on to verse 15. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek and rejected the rock, his saviour. They made him jealous with all their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which were not of God, gods they had not known, 
gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. From verse 36, the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. And when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free, he will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat and their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. This is the word of God. Thanks be to well, as we sit, I'll lead us in a prayer. We've just prayed these words. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. Our Father, that is our prayer this morning, that as we look at these promises made to Israel and their folly, that you would stir up in our hearts a desire to find satisfaction in you alone. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very good morning to you. And uh, as ever, you'll find on the back of the service sheet uh, an outline of where we're going to go this morning. And um, if you were expecting a detailed uh, run-through of these final four chapters of Deuteronomy, um, I'm sorry to say that you'll be disappointed. um, And you're welcome to leave if that's what you were expecting. Uh, but uh, I have given you a little overview on the back of the service sheet uh, of uh, kind of what goes on in each chapter and what I think um, the significance is of that. So if that's um, more your cup of tea, you're welcome to read that while I speak. That's a joke, by the way. (laughs) Well, to get our brains working this morning, I wonder if you could tell me what you think the connection is between these people. Blair and Brown, Ferguson and Moyes, Wogan and Evans, Thatcher and Major, Clarkson and LeBlanc. What do you think connects them? Successes, I heard the word. Everyone see that? Nine o'clock, we're on this. Um, We're we're getting there, that's good. Um, Everyone agree? They're kind of successions, aren't they? But there's also something else that connects them. Because they're all successions that, you could argue, haven't been very successful. See, the person, now I know you might think Chris Evans is better than Terry Wogan, I I don't know, but uh, come and argue afterwards if you think that's not the case. But um, I think all of these are examples of um, successions that haven't been very successful, because um, the person who succeeds them has either had a short shelf life, or they've been constantly compared to their predecessor. Now, why haven't these um, successions worked out? Well, it's because they all follow someone who's been an established leader. And the thing is with established leaders is they make people feel secure under them. And so that when someone succeeds them, no matter how good they might be, 
people feel that that security goes with them, and they feel at sea. Now, perhaps you've felt that for yourself. Perhaps there's been someone in your life, a friend, a family member, a work colleague, and you've looked to them as a leader. And then, for whatever reason, they're not there. And you feel that sense of insecurity as the safety they brought goes with them. Now, if you've ever sensed that for yourself, um, then you'll know something of how God's people are feeling in these final four chapters of Deuteronomy. See, the, the big topic running through these final four chapters is the succession of Moses. Now, Moses, in chapter 31, celebrates his 120th birthday. Just imagine that. I mean, he realizes at that point he's no longer a spring chicken, and uh, the curtains are drawing on his leadership. And in chapter 34, at the end, I'm sorry to give you a spoiler, but, but he dies on the edge of the promised land. And the big question running through those final four chapters is where is security going to be found after Moses? How do, people, how do God's people find that sense of safety when they no longer have God's prophet in their midst? And it's a question I think that we will ask ourselves this morning as Christians. We don't have God's prophet with us physically. We're waiting for his return, and that raises all sorts of uncertainties for us. We want that feeling of safety and security. The question is, where can we find it? Well, Moses shows us, first of all this morning, where true security is found. Now, where do we see this? Well, it's in how he commissions Joshua to succeed him. See, in chapter 31, please um, do turn back to it with me. It's on page 209. See, in chapter 31, um, Moses plans to hand on the baton to Joshua, but it's, it's not as you might think. It's not a straight succession. So you might imagine Moses to say, look, I'm going, but don't worry, because Joshua will be here. You can trust him. But Moses doesn't put things quite like that. Look at what he says, rather, about who's going to lead them. In verse 3, the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy the nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Or verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Or verse 8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Do you see who? It's the Lord, isn't it? It's the Lord who will keep them. Sure, Joshua's going to be there after Moses, uh, leading the charge, but the real leader of God's people, the real king, is God himself. He is their security. He always has been, and he will be after Moses. Now, as you read through these chapters, and we haven't got much time to look at them this morning, but you, you, you'll see that Moses keeps hammering this point time and time again. He wants them to feel in their hearts that God is their security. So in chapter 32, he calls God the rock. In verse 4, he is the rock. His works are perfect, and his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now, depending on your age, when you hear that phrase, the rock, 
Um, you either think of a big immovable object or a wrestler turned movie star. But for the ancient Jewish person, an image of a rock was a picture of safety and security. Imagine with me for a moment that you're in the wilderness. You're walking and all around you is a flat landscape. It's parched, it's dry, and you wonder how long you can keep going. But then on the horizon, you see something like this. You know it's a rock sticking out from the ground. And you'll think to yourself, here's somewhere I can get shelter from the heat. Somewhere I can be safe from the blazing uh, wind. Somewhere perhaps I can even find a spring for water. And Moses takes that image and says, God is like that. He is secure. He's dependable. He is unmovable. Somewhere, somewhere, someone in whom you can be kept safe and secure. And this thread of God being our security runs right through um, the, the chapter 33, uh, the following chapter. See, um, in chapter 33, Moses blesses uh, the tribes of Israel, but um, if you know your blessings, it's, it doesn't read quite as you expect blessings to go. See, blessings typically go that a, a greater person blesses another person, a lesser person. But even though Moses is speaking the blessing, the greater person, he makes clear, is not him, but it's God. So look at verse 27 of chapter 33 on page 214. He's given the blessing, and then he says this, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, destroy him. See, that word refuge there, um, it, it kind of, it's the idea of a hiding place, and it's used even of lion's dens, a place of safety. That is, if you're a lion, and God is that place. He is someone in whom his people are secure. Moses says that you rest under God's everlasting arms. Now, one of um, my favorite games I like to play with my children is um, just to throw them around. I love turning them upside down, uh, chucking them as high as I can into the air. Now, before you get on the phone to uh, the authorities, I, I should add that I do catch them most of the time, at least. But what I love playing with when I'm playing that is their sheer confidence. They have much more confidence than I've got uh, to catch them. They have joy on their faces because they know as they fall to earth that their dad's arms are there to catch them. And so it is with God. He has his people in his everlasting arms. See, Moses says, look, in these chapters, I am going... But you do not need to fear because you have a God who is your security. So it would have been very easy, wouldn't it, for Moses to, to point to Joshua and say, no, look, put all your trust in him. But Moses doesn't. He points to the God who has always led them. And he calls the people to trust in that God. Now that same call to trust is the same call we face today as Christians. In fact, Hebrews 13 uh, quotes what Moses says here and applies it straight to believers today. It says this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content in what you have. Do you recognize these words? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. 
See, that truth that was to keep God's people going as they journeyed into the promised land is the same truth that we, keeps us going as we journey into our promised land. You're never alone. You have a God with you who will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He is your rock. Now, I've been reflecting on this idea, and I thought, it is so difficult to grasp that. And it, I thought to myself, it must have been so difficult for the, for the Israelites to grasp that as well. See, Moses had been with them ever since the beginning. He led them from slavery. He took them right up to the edge of the promised land. It must have felt like Moses was their rock. But now Moses was going to die, and it was going to leave a huge void. Perhaps there have been times where we've lost a Moses. Perhaps we're worried about losing a Moses. Someone we've depended on goes or moves on. I remember one elderly man I knew, he, he was very secure, very self-assured, the sort of person you would naturally respect and look up to. But then his wife died, and it completely broke him. He lost all sense of purpose. And perhaps we know what that's like. Or perhaps we face trials, and we tell ourselves a story, a story which says we're alone. No one understands us. We walk the darkest paths on our own. But Moses says to you this morning, you're not alone. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is your rock. But moving on to our second point, there is a, a tension in these chapters because Moses knows as much as God is their rock and they're secure in him, he knows that they'll look everywhere else for that security. Now, where do we see this? Again, in chapter 31. Um, please turn with me to 31, uh, verse 14. It's on page 210. Now, in this verse, um, God calls Moses and Joshua to come to the tent so that Joshua can be commissioned. But it's almost as if the author presses the pause button um, and doesn't get straight to the commissioning. Uh, Joshua does get commissioned in verse 23, but you'll see there there's a huge block of text where God gives a prediction of what God's people are going to do. And have a look at what he says about their future. Verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your fathers, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. Verse 20. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised an oath, on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. Just imagine what those words would have sounded like to Moses. Here is his life's work, bringing this nation together under this covenant, and they're going to break it. I mean, just imagine what a first day in the office this was for Joshua as he sat at his desk, knowing that ultimately all his work will be futile as the people turn from their God. And because of that, God commissions not just Joshua, but he commissions a song. Have a look at verse 19. Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and make them sing it so that it may be a witness against them. 
See, Moses is to get his pen out and his guitar out and write a song, and this is recorded in chapter 32, and it's a song that's to be sung over and over again by the nation as a witness against them. In fact, I think you could say this is the very first national anthem uh, we, ever have, we ever have recorded. Now, um, normally national anthems celebrate what is best about a nation. They, they, they present an optimistic view of the people. But Israel's national anthem does not boast of their superiority or their virtue. Look at what they say, uh, uh, what, t- what, what, what is said about them in verse 5. They have acted corruptly towards him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Imagine being part of the Israelite football team, singing the national anthem before a match in the center circle. Our God is a great God, but we rejected him. We are crooked, so we're no longer his children. I mean, it's not going to get the crowd going, is it? But that's not the point of the song. The point is to highlight the foolishness of them turning from their rock. Just look at what the people did in verse 10, uh, what God did in verse 10, rather. He says this about Israel. In a desert land, he found him. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, it spreads its wings to catch them, and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. So you get the picture, don't you? They were a helpless nation. They were on their own in the desert, but God took them and cared for them. Moses says God is like an eagle. Now, an eagle, I'm told, will uh, train its young by throwing them out of the nest. And uh, as they kind of flutter to the ground, the, the, the mother will swoop down and pick them up on her wings. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of kind of training these little young eagles to fly for themselves. And Moses says that is what God has done. He's taken this nation and he's cared for them. He's trained them. But look at how the people pay him back. Verse 15. Jeshurun, another kind of ironic name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his saviour. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. Verse 18, you deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. So even though they have all the security of their rock, they turn to imitation gods and idols instead. See, Moses speaks of their greatest problem, and he speaks of our greatest problem this morning. See, as much as God is good, and as much as he offers us security in Jesus Christ, we love to look for that security elsewhere other than him. Now, why on earth did Israel do this? Why do we do this, given that just seems such a foolish idea? Well, notice what marks the turn in verse 15. Jeshurun, Israel, grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him. Do you see what? Do you see what's made the change? It's when they're full up, isn't it? It's when they're in the land. It's when they have full stomachs. In other words, it's when they feel secure in themselves. 
But why does that mean that they turn to idols? I mean, why, why turn to idols when you're secure? Well, you need to understand what an idol is. See, an idol, we've said this over the previous few weeks, is not about do you bow down to a statue. Idolatry is a desire. A desire to have what God offers without the hassle of the God who offers it. I'll say that again. Idolatry is a desire, a desire to have what God offers without the hassle of the God who offers it. See, an idol, it gives you a sense of security without the need to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. See, imagine you're in the ancient world and you you get up one day and you look at your fields out of the garden window, bedroom window, and you worry about the harvest, or you have a, a, a problem with some of your neighbors. Well, then you would go off to the temple, and you make some offering to a god, and expect something back from that god. It's kind of god in a light form. It's kind of like a Diet Coke version of god. Now, we might not have temples quite in the same way, but we construct idols just the same. We construct idols when we put our security in something other than God himself. Just imagine, if you're not convinced of that, imagine with me a scenario. Imagine you felt insecure about your self-worth. You looked inside yourself and you did not feel valued. Well, you could go and make an idol out of relationship. And you could plow your energies into scrolling left or swiping right, trawling profiles. You could seek a relationship that you feel is going to give you value. Or you could make an idol out of work. And you spend every hour working hard, making sure the boss sees you, so you might stand a chance of getting that promotion and getting prestige. Or you could make an idol out of family. And you carefully control uh, and uh, craft your, your family's appearance so that you get praised by other families at the school gates. See, all the time life is fairly comfortable for us, and all the time life is fairly comfortable for Israel, that arrangement kind of holds up. All the time we enjoy comfort, our idols kind of work. They kind of give us an appearance of security. We don't need to lean on the God who might demand more of us, who takes our lives in places we might not want to go. And Moses says, know that reality of your heart. He wants that to have that reality ringing in your ears, that you will be lured to put your security in imitation gods. I wonder if that's something we feel tempted to. But that leaves us in a terrifying position, because God, as we're going to see in our third point, does not tolerate rivals. See, this national anthem gets a whole lot worse as God turns in judgment against his people's idolatry. Just look at um, God's response in verse 20. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Verse 22, for a fire has been kindled, in my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. 
Now, you might read that and you think to yourself, that sounds a little bit extreme. I mean, you might wince at that kind of description, but God has the same standards we would expect of anyone else who has been cheated upon. See, God has been their rock. He has cared for them. He has taken them from nothing and made them into a great nation. And these people cheat on him. They break his covenant. And as they do, God will turn from them. And this national anthem becomes more of a dirge of destruction. Now, as well as promoting what is best about a nation, uh, national anthems also love to sing of military triumphs. So um, take, for example, the French national anthem. Here's the last verse, which ends on this note of victory. Liberty, cherish liberty. Fight with thy defenders. Under our flags may victory. Hurry to thy manly accents. I'm not sure that's a great translation, but um, apparently it is what it says. So that thy expiring enemies see thy triumph and our glory. Do you see? An end of triumph, an end of glory, victory. But Israel's anthem only sings of defeat as God brings judgment by their enemies. Verse 23, I will heap calamities upon them and expend my arrows against them. I will send waste and famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts. This is another kind of picture of uh, the enemies that will come. The venom of vipers that glide in the dust. See, God does not tolerate rivals. Breaking God's covenant is not without its consequences. Just as Moses has warned them time and time in this book not to turn to idols, if they do, judgment will come. But here's the wonderful thing I want us to take away. Here's the wonderful thing. God's judgment is not without hope. See, God wants his people to learn something. And that lesson comes in verse 37. He will say, now where is their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wines of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. Do you see what God's doing? He's taunting them. He's saying, where are your idols when it matters? When the enemies come, lean on them. See how they do. Now, why does he do this? Well, he wants them to see that their idols are utterly useless when it matters. See, Moses knows that if the people stand a chance of finding their security in God, they first need to be broken. They first need to see their idols cannot save them any more than an umbrella can save you from a free fall. See, ultimately... Idols cannot save. They give us a sense of security, the hope of a better life. But when it matters, when our greatest enemies face us like sin and death, they're nowhere to be seen. In the months um, leading up to me becoming a Christian, um, I'd looked at kind of the Christian faith, and I thought to myself, do you know, that sounds quite good, some of that. I, I, I quite like the, uh, the idea of a Christian life. And I was quite into church, um, bizarrely, so... Um, I quite like church, I wanted to do that bit, but I, I didn't want to kind of give over my life to God's hands. I wanted the kind of Christian life bit, but I wanted to hold on to my independence. So what I decided to do, I thought this was very clever of me, I, I decided to live a Christian lifestyle, and I came up with a plan of how that was going to happen, 
without the relationship with God bit. So I wouldn't need to do all the prayer, I wouldn't need to do the relationship, but I'd get all the benefits of being a Christian. See, the thing is, as I look back, I loved my idol of self-reliance so much that bizarrely I managed to distort and twist the gospel and kind of jam it in under my idol of self-dependence. But after a few weeks, I'd become something worse. I'll spare us the details this morning. But it was clear to others who knew me and even to me that I was more unbearable pretending to be a Christian than just being a relaxed atheist. And I realized I was kidding myself. But I'm convinced that that is God's mercy because I was so sold on my idol of self-reliance that I needed God to break it. And that is what God is doing with his people. That is what he promises to do. Have a look at verse 36. And have a look, um, we're reading out, but just, just note that word judge there. It's not quite right. It's not a great translation. It's the, the word vindicate should be there. It's a kind of judgment in a positive sense. Have a look at what it says. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone. Do you see God's response? When their idols are nothing, when he sees their strength has gone, he will have compassion on them. See, God first breaks his people's dependence on their idols so that he can have compassion on them. And so that in verse 43, have a look there, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. Do you see, God will avenge them, and there'll be this massive rejoicing, not only Israel, but the nations. See, despite the turning to idols, despite the breaking of the covenant, despite the judgment, God will act to vindicate his people. It's incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? And where do we see God do this work? Where do we see it? Well, it's when God comes to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. See, in Jesus Christ, God makes the atonement necessary. As Jesus dies and takes on his hands the fire of God's judgment. In Jesus Christ, we see the vindication of God's people as he pays the penalty for sin and cries, it is finished. And in Jesus, we see the compassion of God as by his spirit, he causes our hearts to cry, Abba, Father, and adopts us as his children. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he brings us an eternal security from our greatest enemies, sin and death. See, back to that story of when I became a Christian, it was after I saw all my idols fail that my kind of life improvement plan was in tatters, that God opened my eyes to see that my idol could not save from what was my big enemies but that Jesus Christ has. And at that moment, I remember it well. God opened my eyes and caused me to sing of the security found in him alone. And that is where Moses leaves his people at his death. He leaves them on the edge of the promised land, not wanting them to long for the good old days where he was around, not wanting them to lean solely on Joshua, but singing a song, a song that confesses their idolatry, but the hope of God's mercy. And that is where Jesus Christ leaves us as a people, awaiting his return, awaiting the promised land, singing a song of our idolatry, but the hope of God's mercy.
how marvellous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvellous, how wonderful is my Saviour's love for me. Let's pray. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone. Forgive us, our Heavenly Father, for when we lean on other things for our security. Forgive us, Father, when we've constructed idols in our hearts. Forgive us for the foolishness of that practice. Cause us, we pray, our Heavenly Father, to see the security that is found in you through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please would you increase our love for him and help us to rest on him alone. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.